Welcome to Talking Kotlin. And on this special episode dedicated to International Women's Day, I'm joined by my good friends and colleagues in the Kotlin slash JetBrain slash Android slash everything else community. And I'm going to let each of them introduce themselves because there's way too many for me to do. So starting by my top left corner of my screen, which of course nobody knows what that is. Um, Christina, why don't you introduce yourself? Yes, I win. Okay. Well, my name is Christina Lee. I'm an Android engineer at Pinterest and people probably know me because I also speak a lot about Kotlin, specifically at KotlinConf and a lot of other random conferences. And now we're going to move on to Svetlana. Hi, my name is Sveta, and I do developer advocacy for Kotlin at JetBrains. Florina? I'm Florina Montanescu. I'm a developer advocate at Google, and I focus, among others, on Kotlin as well. And last but not least, Wen. Hi, I'm Huynh Huet Dao. I'm an Android developer, and I work for Atlassian on the Trello application. And you might have seen me a little while ago speaking sometimes next to Christina when I get really lucky. Um, and you might have when I get me. lucky. <laughs> and you might have seen me uh, this last Kotlin Conf also speaking and also doing Kotlin conversations. And this is where I'll be really, really nice and say, no, actually, it's the audience and all of us that are lucky when we see you both speak together. I was hoping we would get to fight over who got to introduce themselves first. Mm, you know? mm-hmm. Okay, let's do this again. Uh, this is Colin yeah, Kong coming <laughs> live from sunny Spain, which we're not live because this is going to be recorded and, and published. On. So we are going to talk about something very, very important, which actually has come up quite a bit. And that is idiomatic Kotlin. But I want to even take it further than idiomatic Kotlin. I want to talk about the promises delivered or not delivered on Kotlin. And, you know, recently in many different areas, I've been like witnessing conversations around, oh, you know, this Kotlin code is not readable and this one is looks nicer and more maintainable in Java. And I know that many of you have spoken about this. So I thought it would be a really awesome topic to to discuss. So well, I think well. that we should start with Florina. Oh my. <laughs> um, I was thinking about the promises that, that you were mentioning. Um, one of the reasons actually why I like this topic is also after after seeing uh, Huen's talk at Kotlin Conf, but also reading um, and seeing some of the talks that Rebecca Franks uh, also gave, um, it felt like there's a common denominator with all of these and with what I think as well. The, uh, Kotlin allows us to do a lot of great things but there's this you know border between when you use it and when you overuse it and trying to determine when when are you crossing that line sometimes feels um feels hard so i don't know, like i like for example all of the scope functions uh, all of the let apply and so on but you can also abuse them by just nesting them again and again and then you end up to uh, the code that you were mentioning had the unreadable code so I don't know. I feel like they're nice, but when do I stop? We don't have any guidelines. So I don't know. Do you have any best practices, for example, of when to use these uh, scope functions? Does, I know, nesting one is already one too many? I don't have an answer to that because the internet would come for me. But I, <laughs> one of the things that you were saying, it's true. <laughs> Also, I said that in my testing talk and it happened, so I felt clairvoyant. But one of the things that you were saying in your your answer flow was that 
we don't have any guidelines. And one of the things that I think is really interesting in this area in particular is whether we need guidelines or whether now is the right time in Kotlin's development to have guidelines. And I think the juxtaposition that a lot of people hold up is is Java or the Java programming language and how they have all of these best practices, but it's also a much, much older language. And so there's a part of me that may exist simply because I've been doing yoga and meditation that thinks it's actually fine that we don't have guidelines and we don't know what we're doing because we're still in that exploratory phase of pushing all the boundaries and doing the wrong things. And it's only through pushing the boundaries that we can find what a reasonable principle is. And so I do see a lot of issues, but I I think that they're part of a natural evolution and learning process personally. Yeah, I, I kind of feel the same way. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, sorry, go Sveta. <laughs> uh, I think we have some guidelines. For instance, we have uh, style guide published at our Kotlin site, also style guide, some style guide published on Android site, but they basically try to cover all the obvious use cases. And what we are talking about are more of these corny cases when it's really sometimes hard to say what is better and where all the debates can go on and go on, like what whether we should uh, use this or that. And for this, I would say that uh, the best guideline would be common sense and just uh, the desire not to spend too much time time on arguing about it. Yeah, the problem with it's common so sense optimistic. is... Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, I, I was going to say, like, that's kind of always, as I, like, have grown in my career, I think when I was, like, younger, and I kind of, like, also, it kind of is mirrored in my Kotlin life, like, my overall to engineer life, my kind of inner Kotlin life is that when you first start with something new, it's helpful to have guidelines and kind of guardrails to kind of usher you to kind of like new things and and learning and practicing. And then as you get older, you have your own experiences and you kind of mature in kind of your thinking and you learn what works for you and what doesn't. Um, I always like, like to say it depends. And that's like my favorite phrase in terms of engineering device, uh, advice or even like my own kind of thinking is like whatever works best for the situation, which might not always fit the guidelines. Do you think that each team will end up doing their own guidelines? Like I know, for example, uh, JetBrains does a great uh, great job explaining what all of these scope functions are, but not providing guidelines on when you should use each of these. I think this is why uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Jose, wrote a blog post on like a sort of a cheat sheet for scope functions. And I end up looking at that one way, way too often than I would want to admit, uh, just because of this, because it's a sort of a like, in maybe an internal uh, guideline that we would want to, I don't know, maybe hopefully help other people use or apply. I think the teams will inevitably create their own guidelines unless they are prone to bike shedding. I think the most important reason to have an external style guide is like what Sveta was saying when you don't want to argue. It's really nice to appeal to a source of truth if you just don't care. But in our team, I feel like we we tend to be able to bring up stylistic issues and come to a consensus pretty quickly. And so we often make decisions that fit our use case that don't necessarily appeal to the global consensus because we're doing whatever we're doing in our specific niche. So I, I think that works, but only if you have a team that's not prone to bike shedding or a team that's small enough to make that happen. I'm sure that at the scale of Facebook or other companies of that nature, that just breaks down very, very quickly to have local style guides because there are so many developers in so many parts of the org, it would be so difficult to reach a consensus. Yeah, I was I was just going to comment on that promise is not delivered uh, because since I mentioned it, 
And I guess it was my fault because it was, it was probably even my promise. It wasn't even a promise. But when, when people used to ask me like, oh, well, you know, when I first was talking about Kotlin and they were like, this looks really cool, but it looks quite similar to Scala. And what's the difference? And I used to say, well, you know, we're way more restricted. So you know how some companies have a style guide on what you should and shouldn't do with Scala? We've kind of built that into the language. And now I'm realizing that that was completely and utterly... Well, I don't want to say... I'll just say I misspoke. That's probably the nicest way of putting it. I think that Kotlin did deliver on a promise of better defaults, though which gets to your point or to your the promise that you feel that you broke. Well, also the fact that like we don't allow any symbol to become an operator, right? Which is one of the big pain yeah. points that uh, folks in the, in the Scala community have. Uh, but, you know, a lot of times it comes back to the style guide. And one, one topic that we've, I think I've spoken to some of you about this before. Like at the last Kotlin Conf, someone approached me and said, is it okay that functions that return unit are written as single expression functions? Because we're having this debate in our team that we're saying that we shouldn't because it's not really readable. And uh, some people saying it's okay. And, and I actually, I never thought of it. I don't know what you folks have kind of ever thought of that or use that practice or not. I always find uh, it's it's interesting because I think I know I talk about readability so much, and there's kind of like an area where readability is is kind of subjective. <laughs> I remember like the, back in my Java days having arguments with someone over whether like something like the ternary operator was readable, and and not even like taking it to an extreme case. So I, I always find it kind of interesting to talk about readability because there's like really simple straightforward ideas of like please don't use like single letter like variables versus what i what i think is maybe kind of slightly more nuanced like this case i mean it, in the particular case that you're talking about i'd actually say no um because i find expression bodies to represent an expression a value um so i would say no just because i feel like unit to me doesn't mean that um but that's my personal opinion but I wouldn't, I wouldn't like hate on someone for using it. And I think that's just like the interesting thing is that if they find a, I could, someone could argue with me and present me a decent argument for doing that, I think. I can't, I don't know what it is, but I, I, I would say it's probably possible. I agree with when I, I think that unit represents a side effect because you're not returning anything. And the idea of assigning a side effect as the value of a, a function seems very prone to misuse to me. Obviously, there there will be cases when it when it probably makes sense because there's always cases that break the rules. But it it seems like it would very much mix up mental models. A lot of what I've been thinking about these days with my Kotlin, especially looking at my own Kotlin that I wrote like two to three years ago, is intention and like what specifically are you trying to say? Is there? I mean, for lack of of a, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, what is the story? in this piece of code? What are you trying to say and what is what is going on here? And if the code does not accurately reflect the story, the, the your what, what your intention is, then maybe it's not worth doing it that way. Or maybe it's not idiomatic or readable or what, uh, however you wanna phrase it. But uh, that's something I ask myself all the time now. I want to comment a little bit about this unit question. I'm not sure what uh, people who approached Hadi at the conference wanted, but for me, it more looks like 
probably what they wanted uh, really what, not just returning a, a, using expression syntax with unit, but putting the whole function in one line, which currently IntelliJ doesn't allow you because if you put uh, the one line function in a uh, function body syntax using function body syntax, it will uh, use several lines. It will put the closing curly brace at a different line. I'm not sure that was an issue, but probably uh, that's like another question in discussion, like uh, solving their real problem other than uh, asking this another question. Probably the format can be updated and considered whether we can allow using uh, this uh, function body syntax in one line. Well, I, th thank you for pointing out that I don't know how to explain myself. And it, and it's true, I don't. Um, but I think that what they were trying to say, and this is, I guess, fair, is that if you look at a simple function that is adding 2 plus 2 or x plus y, and you know, the you know both of them are integer, you can deduce what the return type is. So you know what that expression is going to return. Whereas if you look at a function that returns unit, you like you have to think about it a little bit to see if this function is actually returning a type different to unit, which is then therefore, does it make it harder to reason about the code? Does that make more sense? Yes. <laughs> I was like, I was nodding. <laughs> I think we were all nodding here. Just the podcast needs, needs to support video as well. Or like some haptic feedback, like when you're listening to it on your phone, just like shaking, like, yes. Ooh, but I like that. <laughs> but th that that was the kind of like the, the point of it. And, and Christina, something that you said earlier on, like, you know, that unit is not returning a value. Now, technically, unit is an object and is being returned and you can assign mm -hmm. it. Right. So, but then it goes back to the interpretation of does everybody that use Kotlin essentially understand that unit is essentially the same as void? Right. Like yeah. And I didn't mean to imply that. that it, yeah, it wasn't a value. I more meant that it is a value that tends to represent a side effect. So, yes, you're returning a value, but that value tends to represent a concept that I think really mixes mental models in this particular use case. Yeah. Because it's it's like the best we have to represent the idea of the work that I did here uh, is not returnable. So like here's some placeholder thing that is returnable, but the, the work that I cared about was like writing to the DB or something that I can't directly return to you. And so the idea of having this this single statement function return a type that is a placeholder for I don't have anything concrete to return to you seems misguided, but also I've had all of five seconds to think about it. So you should definitely take my opinion as the authoritative one. <laughs> hot take, hot take. Um, yeah, no, I, definitely I, hot take. I, I do think there's something to be said with what Sveta was saying, because I feel like, I feel like part of the promise was, of Kotlin was also kind of like, you know, more concise, more readable code. At least that's the way I interpret it when I was uh, first learning it. And I think because of that promise, there's a temptation to kind of do quote, cool things or kind of concise things. And like, while it may, may not be like so intentional, but trying to make it as like to cold golf and make it as short as possible. I think there's like this intention, like, oh, well, isn't this cool that I can like, you know, make unit a return type into this expression body. And I, I think it's just like a temptation because you can do it to do it. Um, maybe that's a little simplistic, but I definitely have had personally that 
experience, you know, with, with a lot of the features in Colin is just this temptation to do something cool because I can, uh, and because it looks neat. Which is essentially every developer's dream, right? Like it's, it's, it's yeah. the, exactly the wrong tool to put in front of developers. Yeah, if you can do it, be sure that we will. Even if we shouldn't. There's something, I, I know this is devil's advocate, but I think there's something wonderful about that because yes, we talk about how awful it is for a maintainable code base, but the number of people I've talked to who just thoroughly enjoy writing Kotlin is is much higher than with, with most other languages. I think I also see people who do this with Swift who enjoy it. So yeah, we shouldn't be code golfing in our production code bases, but, but it, there's something really fun about having such an expressive language and and being able to poke at the the dark corners of it and kind of explore and see what works and what doesn't work. I'm not saying you should put it in prod, but I actually find it kind of fun. Well, and I, I feel like, sorry, but I feel like most people find their way out of the dark eventually. It might take a little while, but as you do things and you start to realize, I have no idea what I wrote six months later, you you kind of, you kind of come around, I think. Can I come back to something that Christina was saying earlier? So it was this idea that we're still in a in a learning phase until we're able to create a, I don't know, best practices with Kotlin. What needs to happen to be able to get to that point? What are the lessons that we need to learn and how long will it take us to get there? I mean, we need to make a lot of mistakes, right? I think that's the phase that we're in right now. And I, I don't think that you can substitute like I, I don't think that foresight will replace experience, unfortunately. And so I know a lot of people put out Kotlin best practices early on. And I just think that no matter how good their intention, they'll probably have gotten things a little bit right, but mostly wrong. And that's because we're really, really bad at predicting the future and the ways that we're going to screw up. So I, th this goes back to what I was saying earlier, where I feel like it's entirely necessary for us to have a period where we're diverging before we can decide on something convergent and a set of rules that should apply in most cases. But I don't know, what do other people think? I can add uh, that uh, if the language is evolving, if new features appear, then you can uh, never guarantee that, uh, you, can, you can never uh, end up uh, uh, in a situation when uh, you know all the dark corners uh, when you uh, know all the cases where something uh, where people can misuse uh, the functionality, the features. So it's like you're never safe. We try our best to avoid this. For, ins for instance, all this experimental state of features and uh, gathering early feedback early as possible that allows us to uh, to get this feedback and to. Uh, modify the new features so, so that they uh, couldn't be misused or misinterpreted and stuff like this. But I I would say that we can never avoid it completely. Actually, that that's kind of a, something interesting to me is that as you were saying, like as you're adding new features or maybe like changing APIs, that would inherently mean that any previous best practices change. Have you, like at JetBrains, like as a team, as things change and evolve in Kotlin, how do you think people like respond to that? Are they generally pretty open? Are, are Is it kind of like a struggle or is it somewhere in between? I've always found that kind of interesting. Like what, what, because I, I just feel like Kotlin is so willing to kind of like do what is best um, as long and, and not break at the same time. But um, I just kind of curious what, what kind of, I don't know, uh, what kind of, what, what the feel of the community is when you kind of take them in different directions. I mean, I don't think that we've really had any kind of 
negative backlash at all so far. I guess that we're still up there in the category of, you know, oh, everything you do is awesome, right? From, from the people that, that love the language. There are a few things that some people like are against, uh, but I don't feel like there's ever, ever been any kind of like massive negative backlash around anything. I don't know, Sveta, do, do you? I don't remember it either. And I think it, uh, on the contrary, the feedback from uh, people on the early stages, because mostly uh, I think that we uh, we've ma we managed to gather all uh, such kind of feedback er as early as possible before stabilizing the features. So I think this, uh, for instance, coroutines might be a good example. And uh, for how long they were in experimental stage, like for a year or more than a year. And uh, lots of things has changed. For instance, the whole structured concurrency period, and that all was uh, mostly based on how people were using it, uh, what feedback they gave, and uh, what use cases were covered, and what problems they uh, they came up with, and so on. So it wasn't like negative feedback, feedback, but just feedback. Okay, this works like this. What what can be improved? And uh, uh, I think the final solution was uh, for very much was very much based on on what people on how people were using coroutines before. And Flo, you started this topic by asking us the question, but I actually think that you have incredible insight as someone who's doing DevRel for a living. So do you have an answer to your own question? Um, it felt like, or at least for me, it feels like there are three influences on, on Kotlin and what Kotlin readability is or best practices are. Uh, what Sveta says, that uh, the language keeps evolving, then I would say the experience of the developers that are using uh, the, the Kotlin APIs and also uh, as in like experience in Kotlin, first of all, or and experience with other languages. So, for example, for someone that's new with development, even something like a like a map function can seem something strange and not knowing, okay, what do I do with this? But if you're coming from a, from a background of you know other languages that use this, it might be easier to understand. As you said, like Hadi, you're uh, mentioning Scala um, as an example of uh, of languages people are used before Kotlin. Um, I think it, yeah, it gets easier to understand or it gets easier to use Kotlin. And then, I don't know, in terms of also what makes Kotlin more readable, I wonder how much is also something like a personal taste like or knowledge of Kotlin. Like you're using these functions every day. So then when you see it in, a, in code, it's very easy for you to understand what that thing does. But then maybe someone that's new to Kotlin uh, might find it harder or new to development might find it even harder. Well, that goes back to the same example. I mean, forget the language for a moment. Talk about functional programming versus object-oriented programming, yeah? You know, 10 years ago, you you would put a filter or a flat map in front of someone and they'll be like, well, what are you doing? What is that? Now it's second nature to the majority of folks. Yeah, but then you put um, some other construct or you maybe talk about a monad or you maybe talk about, you know, some other higher order function that is not so commonly known and they'll be like, nope, I don't want this in my code base. Exactly. So does that mean that developers should, what should we help, what should we do to help uh, developers, I don't know, write more idiomatic code? Should we, I don't know, provide more functional programming, I don't know, trainings or... I mean, I guess, I mean, we've been talking about idiomatic Kotlin. What, ex what exactly is idiomatic Kotlin? And let's put it like a simple example. 
Okay, today it came up for me. I was writing a function to get some uh, data from an HTTP endpoint. And I'm thinking to myself, why am I, why would I create a class for this? Why not just create a top level function? And, and that's, a, I guess that that's a simple question that people are often confronted with over and over again with Kotlin, right? Should I be creating classes or should I just be creating top level functions? What do you folks do? I see the role of a class and the role of a function as as different. Um, I don't know, like in the example that you mentioned, chances are you want to encapsulate that response that you're getting from the network and represent it in a sort certain way. So that would be a class for me. But then a top level function would be I don't know an action that you're performing. Christina, <laughs> you can see my microphone go off. Well, I I actually very much agree with with Flow, but one of the things that I was thinking while you were talking about what is idiomatic Kotlin is actually why do we need idiomatic Kotlin? And and that point is also extremely interesting to me because we talk about it with this default assumption that we should always be idiomatic. But to Flo's point, I think that there's that's a stand-in for what we actually care about, which is something like, is is this the most functional piece of code? Is this the easiest to read piece of code, et cetera, et cetera? So the definition of of what is idiomatic and why we care about it, I think is also a very interesting topic. I think that uh, we should care about non-idiomatic Kotlin. So there are use cases, we know them, some of them, some of them not that clear, but we know some of the use cases when there are samples of badly written code in terms that, okay, it's not that clear, it's not, uh, we know how to do it better. Most of the time, I think uh, it's uh, like people agree on that. So that's uh, more like boring use cases, not the ones that uh, cause lots of controversy. But I still find it important to find these more obvious cases to showcase what is not that idiomatic, what causes confusion and how to avoid that. And uh, for this, I believe that uh, it's important to have these use cases and to gather such samples uh, to represent non-idiomatic Kotlin. So one of the sample I can mention is it was recently published at our uh, Kotlin tips uh, was not to repeat uh, each uh, Lambda parameter name in neighboring lines when uh, it represents different types. And uh, people tend to sometimes do that and we know that it causes confusion. So uh, we know that there are replacements to this. So I would say that we can call such sample as non-idiomatic Kotlin. And uh, uh, most of the samples in between are more complicated and still need some debate around it. Yeah, I think that echoes what Flo said really nicely, which is your example was showing how if you if you use this language construct, it will lead to confusion. And I think Flo's response to Hadi's example was, well, if if you use one over the other, it'll make it less uh, organized or less encapsulated or less testable. And so you would decide that way. You bring up a good point as well, which is what exactly is idiomatic. So welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, we're going to talk about idiomatic Kotlin. But to begin with, we'll try and define what exactly idiomatic means. Next, we'll cover the meaning of life. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so when I think about idiomatic Kotlin, it's also things that I would write, but actually Kotlin provides me a way to write that. So um, the example on top of mind right now is uh, singletons. I can implement singletons without using object. But Kotlin offers me the object 
keywords. So if I don't need a parameter for my singletons, then I can just use that. For me, that's the kind of idiomatic often is the stuff that I don't need to do because because the language helps me do it. Similarly, if I want to, I don't know, just have a wrapper over one type, then maybe inline classes can be the solution for that instead of me just doing a wrapper over a type. Or data classes instead of your typical Java bean, right? Yeah. Okay. No, yeah. I love that definition, but I feel like we will need to add to it on top of it to cover something like Sveta's case where Kotlin allows us to do something that ends up being a foot gun. So I wonder how we can start with that base and then also add the cases where Kotlin's letting you do something or Kotlin's providing a way to do something, but it's it's maybe not clear or it'll it'll cause you pain in the long run. I always been thinking that lately that it feels like, you know, and I, I keep talking about Andre's keynote from 2018 and that Kotlin is meant to be pragmatic and that in the face of not knowing what to do or being like unsure of what is idiomatic or not, that the pragmatic thing I would argue is more in the spirit of Kotlin and maybe that would be idiomatic. Um, and whether pragmatic means using a Kotlin feature or not using a Kotlin feature to make it more readable and maintainable. Um, yeah, that's kind of been where my thinking has been at. Because I, I think when I first started learning Kotlin, I was like, I'm going to use all the Kotlin things. Uh, and that must make it idiomatic because I'm using top level functions. I'm using data classes. I'm using, you know, like higher order functions everywhere. Uh, but I think as I look at my code now, I, I find some of those things just the way that I did them. And they're not the guidelines, so it's not Kotlin's fault. <laughs> but that they're they're less pragmatic and that and that there's something to be said there. I think. I, I also can add here that uh, for me, we often uh, speak about idiomatic code when we uh, say, okay, you convert some Java class to Kotlin, you use automatic converter, it produces you non idiomatic Kotlin because it looks like Java, and then you can make it more idiomatic. And for me, making it more idiomatic would be okay, when it makes sense, use a scope function. It doesn't tell you use one of these uh, for like this specific for uh, scope function for each use case. But uh, we often imply that whenever it makes sense, scope function will be more idiomatic than the absence of this scope function, the way we would like, we would write it in Java. So I think we have lots of use cases where idiomatic makes sense, uh, which are probably more or less, uh, how to say it, uh, clear. Going back to the function example, I, I'm going to disagree a little bit. And and it goes back to, well, you know, again, what is idiomatic or not? But why should I have a class if I just have a function that returns a type? Like, what what is the need of the class overhead there? If my class is, you know, from school, they told us that classes, was a, a classes or object were about uh, encapsulating data and behavior. And if you look at the vast majority of code bases, essentially what they're doing is instantiate a class and invoking several functions on them without actually having any uh, data or state maintained by that class. Then again, I would argue, so why can't I just put all of my functions in a, in a, in a file? Why do I have to have the overhead of a, of a class? And if I do that, is that idiomatic Kotlin? Is it not? Does it matter if it's idiomatic Kotlin? I think that the function, the the 
contents of the function matters greatly in this regard, because if it's a pure function that's only being used as a transform, I think it makes sense to put it at a top level. But if it's something that you would want to test or that will very likely grow and need to interact with other group logic, then I think it makes more sense to evaluate whether a class works in that case. But not not having clarity into the the function body makes anything I say wrong. <laughs> I'm bound to be wrong. It depends. Oh, there we go. I love that. I, I just love I it. was just about to say that actually in Compose, pretty much everything is just a function. You wouldn't really instantiate a new class that often. So that would actually support your uh, argument, Hadi. And whence, it depends. You know, I... I, I kid you not, this is the first time in my life that I've realized why don't I use the word, the phrase, it depends for everything in life. You're always right if you say it depends, exactly. always. <laughs> okay, so let's drill down into certain uh, areas of Kotlin because, again, we talk a lot about idiomatic. Let's take a look at, for example, DSLs. Now, DSLs are one of those things that we hyped quite a bit about Kotlin, that it's very easy for you to create a DSL. And if you look at frameworks such as, for instance, Ktor, it basically uses DSLs, uh, which is, you know, for people not familiar with it, it's a combination of a few features, including lambdas with receivers, etc., to have this kind of natural look to, to the language. So we use it for defining roots, H Kotlin X, HTML uses it for defining statically type HTML. What about you folks? Do you actually use these in your applications outside of maybe some framework doing it? Um, to be honest, I, I guess at least speaking for my team, I think uh, we generally don't use our own DSLs because there's so many DSLs that we use for things that I think would make good uses case cases for them. They they already exist, um, and that I think that the kind of things that this is just my perspective. Things that I would imagine using a DSL for, which I imagine to be kind of like more like static or structured information or behavior. We don't like we don't, we we don't come across it that often. Um, so. I've come across DSLs in, in our code base. I think that they're really hard to do in a way that makes them easy to use. I think it's really, really hard to design them in a, in a very fluent way. And so I have not personally been a huge fan of when we've created our own, not because I don't think they're a powerful feature, but because I don't think that we were devoting the necessary time to making them really, really easy to use in, in the way that some of the ones that are coming in through external dependencies clearly have a lot of thought behind them and, and a lot of um, clarity on what their API should be. Doesn't Compose use it, Florina? I don't Thing necessarily that it's using DSLs. I know that it's using uh, a lot of, uh, of functions, but I don't know if under the hood there it's all one DSL. So I can't answer precisely on this one. Yeah, I mean, I guess they're using, I, again, it depends on, yeah, uh, I guess lambdas with receivers there, they're using quite a bit. Okay, so another question I have for all of you. We talked er uh, earlier on about code style, and then someone, I don't know who it was, mentioned that would, you know, would different teams have their own code style? How does that really bring me value as a Kotlin developer? 
So let's say that you know I'm working in one of the companies and one of the teams has a code style and I'm happy with that code style and everything is great and everyone in the team is understanding everything. And now generally I know all of those features that are being used and, I'm, and I've gotten used to them. And now I move to another company or another team and they've got a completely different code style. Is that actually helping us as a community industry Kotlin developers? Can I tie this back to Women's Day really quickly and ask the other women developers a question? Okay, so one of the things that I think makes style guides very useful is that I've personally had the experience where I've put up a diff and it's gotten nitpicked in in like very, very minute ways, like 20 nitpicks, but no no comments that were based on substance. And I think that having a style guide uh, for a lot of developers who you know may not be in in the majority at their company can be a, a safety net against nitpicking because it's lintable usually and you have like an agreed upon standard and so there can't be uh, this double standard in code and so I'm not sure if that's a universal experience or if, if that's just me but I was wondering if Win or Flo or Sveta had any comments on that. I, I do find that to be valuable, um, especially depending on the scale of a team and how your you your your team um, individually does their reviews. Um, and I think that it's not just it's 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 like a good I think it's a good team cohesion thing where yeah you don't want people kind of nitpicking. Um, also, everyone's on the same page um, as well, um, and it's also kind of to be kind of more I guess pragmatic or kind of more like business like about it. It is an efficiency thing as well because then everyone kind of writes code that is kind of to a certain standard or form that is kind of like, I guess in the, in the kind of context of your team uh, easier to read and easier to review. So I, I do find that valuable in that sense. Um, yeah. Plus one to what uh, Juan is saying, we saw this in even when working on Pla that a lot of our comments were actually knit and some of them were, I know, Kotlin language related stuff uh, that in the end, having the compiler or the lint actually telling us that, hey, you shouldn't be doing this like this was a general, valid, helpful thing. And it allows us allowed us to focus on what matters most, which is what are we trying to ship I can also add that ideally, I think uh, that would like uh, all these, I don't know, style guides uh, converge into one universal style guide. But the question is to which extent. So we have some, we have a style guide already. And uh, I think initially there was uh, the request for this, similar to what we are discussing right now. Like several teams have different style guides. What should we do about it? Should we have uh, one style guide instead? Uh, so on and so forth. Uh, however, as I understand it, we try to gather all non-controversial stuff there and uh, everything that is, uh, uh, again, clear and uh, uh, more or less agreed. And uh, whatever is remaining, I would say that probably we still need some more um, amendments to it or, and see what uh, different uh, style guides uh, different teams have right now. What issues do they cover there? Because I suppose if it's on top of uh, the style guide that we already have, probably something can be added to it. So my question would be what other topics are covered in team style guides currently? Do you know something about it? So maybe we can ask the listeners of this podcast to actually write a blog post or publish a 
gist or something about their style guides. And like this, we can learn from each other and find out what we can integrate in this style guide that uh, Sveta, you're mentioning, and just write better Kotlin code. Actually, to go back to maybe what Hadi's original question was, is that if I work at one company that has code style A, and I go to another company that has code style B, like what value is that for me? And and this is like speaking very personally is that I know I have, as many engineers have, very strong opinions about certain things um, and how I would use something. And when you're on a team, you often have to um, compromise between different very strong opinions. Um, and I, I, even though like I might bristle at first at a decision we might make, I think that the idea of having people kind of figure out what the best code style for that, for their team is and expose, you know, kind of like um, having to experience like different opinions gives you kind of different kind of challenges your assumptions or challenges your notions on what is the absolute right way to do something and what isn't. And I know for me, and I, I feel sorry, I keep like bringing up stuff that I've already talked about. So I'm sorry if like, I just keep talk, talking about stuff for my stuff, but like say like things like nullability, like I know I had very strong opinions about what we should do and shouldn't do. And like some people on my team had a totally different opinion. And while at first, you know, I, you know, wasn't in the majority, I've kind of like, as I'm, as we're writing this code, as I'm kind of working with a code style, which I don't 100% agree with, I'm kind of seeing the bounds of where my opinion, you know, was, uh, could be kind of changed a bit. And then at the same time, like, I feel like there are bounds to maybe where the code style that we decided on maybe like, uh, need some amendments. And there's kind of like this convalescent, which I think is kind of what Sveta was referring to as well as like, as we it kind of like establish our different code styles and see what kind of like where they work and where they don't. We all might be kind of like coalescing to a universal style. And and I think it challenging your assumptions and challenging your opinions on things and exploring, you know, the edge cases and the dark corners is very worthwhile and that people kind of get to the same place eventually. How do you deal with people that don't? I mean, like, let's say you're on a team and, and, there's five people that feel, I don't know, I'm not even going to put numbers, but like, how do you convince someone if you strongly feel that your code is more readable in Kotlin, how do you convince them that that code is more readable and, and more maintainable than or comprehensible, as Kevlin Henney would say, than the same code written in Java? You can't say no to this one. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a hard question. It's like almost a team dynamics question. Um, it's it's difficult. I think, I think I, I, in the in the occasions that we have, um, I feel like I feel like at least on our team, and this is I, I'm very lucky in that you know we have a lot of good discussions. We generally kind of lay out, you know, it's it's very kind of like try to try to keep <laughs> try to keep like just personal opinions out of it and talk about the specific use cases and needs of the team. Kind of lay out pros and cons. And talk about how are we actually going to use this? What do we actually need? There's like, I feel like a lot of times people have like assumptions that that are very idealistic, that are things that, I don't know, they're kind of like hot. I, I like to call them castles in the clouds kind of things. But then you talk about the actual needs of the team. And I mean, even then it's sometimes it's just like, okay, what does a majority of the team, what are they comfortable with? What do they need? Uh, well, how do they feel uh, would work best for them? And, and sometimes it's just as simple as that. But I think... It, it, it requires, in my opinion, an environment of open discussion and understanding that, you know, um, everyone's going to have different opinions. Uh, most opinions are valid. <laughs> I don't say all opinions are valid. But, uh, everyone, everyone has like, you know, a, 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 
a an equal kind of like position in that they can say what they prefer or what they see as like the right thing to do. And you kind of just, again, weigh pros and cons. It's not easy. It is not easy, but um, I think you have to be, I think you have to just establish like, okay, like there's, there's, there's more than one way of doing something. And what is the right way for us? It depends. I didn't say no. I said it depends. Uh, Okay. The rest of you, any tips on how to deal or, you know, try and, convince someone if you strongly feel that you're on the right path make a twitter poll and they tell them you see i've told you <laughs> perfect i love it I need that one next time. so i would steal something from my tech lead who i think is is just really um awesome in this regard which is that usually we, we have an Android guild at our company where all the Android engineers meet every other week. And this is where these topics come up. Usually there's a pretty clear way that the company engineers are leaning. When that is not the case, then she will literally say, who cares the most about this? And whoever cares the most about it ends up taking the issue and and updating the documentation, updating the linters and doing all of this. And I like this as an approach because... If it's really a toss-up, then the person who cares the most is probably going to be the one who gets like really angsty if it goes against them. And they're also the one who's most motivated to to do all of that documentation updating and lint updating and and you know education that needs to happen when you when you set a new precedent. And so that's worked really well for us. And I'm I'm not saying that it's always who cares the most because you can care a lot about something and be very, very wrong about it. But this is specifically in the case where we've had a roundtable discussion and the the pros and cons of both are are trivially equal and in that case we go with who cares the most and and i think that's worked really well for us i i totally i i i think i've i've, I've personally had like a discussion this i absolutely like think that's an awesome way to go i would like also caution that um sometimes people speak more not necessarily care more and i think that's something that makes me i uh, a little bit nervous sometimes about that approach is that depending on, I guess, how much people are kind of open or it, rephrase. I always get nervous that the loudest person is misconstrued as a person that cares the most. Do you ever run into that? And like, how do you, is that something that needs to be kind of addressed? I think that's right. But what I like about Christina's approach is that it's not necessarily the loudest, but you have to actually take action. So even if you're the loudest, that doesn't matter if you didn't do anything. So that's what I really like about Christina's approach. Yeah. And I think that is the equalizer there is that you have to care enough to go in and do all of this work, which which is a pretty high bar because nobody wants to take time out to write the lint or to write the documentation. So when in doubt, if we if we don't have a policy, it just stays status quo unless you are so convinced of your point that you're willing to put in the effort. And I think that equalizes a little bit because the people who speak the most often will not want to be the people who get assigned the JIRA task to go and update the lint. And, and they'll very vocally back away from it. So it's it's helped equalize a lot. But I think the problem you bring up is completely valid and it will never be solved and and this would not be perfect for that case either because quiet people can be very uh have very strongly held opinions and sometimes get overshadowed no but i think i think i know i think that's right like making someone do the work (laughs) is would definitely i think that's that's a great that's a great point 
just to play devil's advocate here, though, wouldn't it potentially lead to a situation where a valid, strong opinion might not be made, uh, you know, surfaced because someone doesn't want to do the work? Absolutely. Yeah, there are people who feel strongly and have brought up something. And then when it comes time to do the work, they uh, they don't want to do the work. And, and then that thing doesn't get implemented. But I would argue that if you don't care enough to do the work, you don't care that strongly to begin with. Or conversely, if the thing that you want to implement can't have tooling written against it, maybe it's not as valid as you would otherwise think. Like if, if it's so hard to roll out this change, then the change should not be made because you don't want your org to be in this haphazard state of like, I believe this thing strongly and you should do it, but I'm not going to support you in any way whatsoever as you do it. Valid point. Cool. So I think we're we're running into the hour, which is awesome. This is really fun. We should we should do this every week. Uh but I but I do want to kind of wrap things up. And uh I'd like to kind of do it like with like a quick fire, talking about code styles and do's and don'ts. If each of you could briefly or not so briefly, it depends really. Uh give me <laughs> an example of what you try and avoid when writing Kotlin code. Let's do it in the reverse order from which we did the introductions and I'm hoping that you all remember. So when you would go first. Mm, uh, writing code that when viewed on its own. So um, if you are writing code that requires you to lean on the IDE for type hinting or things like that, um, that can't be viewed say on a third party tool like GitHub or some other PR, if you are writing code that someone can't understand by just looking at the code without any extra help, um, I would reevaluate it. So things like type inference, for example, or even like kind of skipping out on like parameter namings, um, I would avoid that. I would be, I would, I would, I would, uh, don't be afraid of being explicit, um, even but, though being implicit is fun. But does that mean that you completely avoid uh, type inference? Like No, I... No, I, I think it, I mean, like it's, it's obvious if you have say like, I don't know, Val something equals, I don't know, like, and then a constructor, it's pretty obvious what that is. Right. Um, and that's not, that's not necessary, but I mean, I think, uh, I know when I write code every day, there's not too, there's very often that I'm writing something where the right hand side is not a single constructor or, or single simple expression, but a chain of things where maybe like say like a chain of like reactive something stream operators where the type is changing quite a bit. Um, and I've definitely written a lot of code where I look at it later and I've lost what the type is because we're using it in between or there's no type at the beginning. So when I'm there to add something, something else to the stream, I have no idea what's going on and I have to kind of drill in with the ID and, and reviewing code like that's kind of hell too. So, um, yeah. Okay, Florina. What I was thinking about was around um, extension functions and top-level functions versus uh, classes. It's like understanding what should be where. Uh, maybe think about um, extension functions, like really thinking of whether a function needs to be part of a class. Does it need to be an extension function or does it just need to be a completely separate function? Um, I think sometimes it's easy to just either put everything in a class or either put everything as an extension function, uh, but maybe that's not necessarily needed. Um, so 
I think the TLDR would be if you're using extension functions, think whether this really makes the code readable and whether you expect to have a specific function when you're using a type or it should be just another I know, top level helper kind of function. Sveta. Uh, I can mention three things. The first one I've already mentioned with the uh, each lambda parameter. Uh, so it's already covered. Uh, the second one I can mention uh, is with, uh, has something to do with parentheses. Uh, so I would say that we all need to use uh, this invoke convention uh, with care and uh, the functions, they're returning functions, they're returning functions, uh, something like this. So uh, when, whenever there is uh, a code that uh, the reader doesn't understand what, what's going on or why uh, we call it as a function, probably uh, something needs to be changed, even if it's like, I don't know, an extra variable sometimes might really help here. Uh, and uh, so it was the second thing. And uh, the third thing is uh, there is, I think uh, there is uh, this point where Kotlin gets sometimes bashed uh, uh, when uh, we have a cascade of implicit receivers and it's not uh, obvious uh, whichever method, whichever function, whichever member is called, uh, which member is called. And in this case, it also makes sense to somehow restructure the code. Uh, it might be the case when we use code functions uh, that are they take lambda as receivers as an argument, and we use one function inside another function inside another function, and we have this list of implicit receivers. And prob I would say that it's better to avoid it and uh, to replace implicit receivers with explicit receivers, or do something else, or somehow restructure this. So yeah, that was that was my three things. Christina. Yeah, it was hard for me to think of something. To be honest, I think the one thing that came to mind is that I give very squinty eyes to custom getters and setters on properties right now because I feel like it's something that's very powerful but often misused. And so when I when I see code with a, a property that overrides the get or the set, Many, many times I'll take a second look at that and, and try to figure out if we really, really need that. And I think that might just be a legacy of we expect properties or fields on classes to behave in a certain way, and that can quietly change the way that they behave. And so, again, in terms of the mental model in people's and programmers' minds, I worry about distorting it. And so... That's not necessarily an opinion about whether to use them or not, but just something that I've been thinking about recently a lot as I'm code reviewing Kotlin is, is the use case for these and when specifically we should be using them and when it's more of an abuse of the, the language's power. Good list of items to uh, be careful of and, and avoid. So it's been great having you all. I think that it's been a wonderful discussion. It kind of makes me sad that we're going to have to wrap up. Uh, but you know, as with all things, it depends. I'm just going to use that all the time now. Here, I'm done. Like it depends. No, good. It depends. You should hey, change your Twitter bio. Totally. It's like you know. Hey, you're going to take the garbage out. It depends. Oh, we should make well, T-shirts, and we should just make branded like paraphernalia. It just everything. Yeah, it depends. I agree, but you're only allowed to say it depends if you also do the shrugging motion. I just wanted to let you know if that bylaw. 
Oh, I've been I've been practicing my shrugging at, at the gym. Oh, well, I just I just <laughs> dropped in the fact that I've been going to the gym. I mean, that, you know, that I think that there is someone in the world that still doesn't know. Uh, but now now everyone will know. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, we should do this again sometime. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and please, like, next time, stop muting your mics because I'm I'm being so awesomely funny and no one's laughing to my at my jokes to my jokes. Are you, are you laughing funny? the whole time? Are you laughing to me or at me? To me. You don't want to know, how do you Does it matter? <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Okay. Well, it's a very polite thing to do, though. I feel like we're like, oh no, you go ahead, you go ahead. What muting at the mice? same time? What if yeah, you so were yeah you were saying something, but actually nobody would uh, laugh, and we, all of our mics would be unmuted? Mm. That's actually a good point. So I'll cut this part out and I'll say that <laughs> their mics are always muted and they were just laughing. They were hysterically on the floor. They're like, there's a private chat going on with just ruffles sending over all the time. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, thank you uh, to all of you and uh, to all of the women out there listening on to this podcast on this day. Uh, thank you for being awesome and power to you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you.